Previously on Colossians, or in Colossians, however you want to do it, there's a guy named Paul, and he is living in the first century, and he had this incredible experience with the risen, resurrected Jesus. At one point, he wanted to stop all the Christians, but he met Jesus, and then he just couldn't stop telling everybody about Jesus, so much so that the Roman Empire and other religious authorities threw him in prison because he just kept leading people to hear about this resurrected Jesus. But even when he's thrown into prison, he just won't stop telling people about this Jesus. He was telling people that Caesar is not the Lord of the world, that Jesus is the Lord of the world, and that caused a little bit of an issue. So he's in prison, and he's writing these letters to these early communities of Jesus followers. <laughs> One of them was to this place called Colossae, and that's where we get the book of Colossians. Colossae, we've said, is very similar to Kokomo. It's like a mid-sized town, probably with a great cost of living and not a lot of high traffic areas. And uh, Colossae, like this is this brand new church. And so we said here at Bridgeville, we've got like all these connections with this church in Colossae, right? And there's all this awesome stuff happening where new people are like getting baptized and they're like trusting Jesus for the first time. But there's also a couple wrinkles that Paul needs to, you know, iron out. One of them is that they were sort of subscribing to what we called earlier in the series the Jesus Plus plan, right? Where it was like, yeah, we love Jesus, we wanna worship Jesus, but, I mean, we live in the Roman Empire and there are like Roman gods and goddesses. Like, we can like worship Jesus and like, you know, pay homage and worship Artemis, right? We can do both. And Paul's like, no, you guys are missing the point. Jesus plus anything, any other God, any other system, it equals nothing, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It says Jesus is supreme. Jesus is central. Jesus needs to be the focal point of your life. So don't add things to Jesus. Then in chapter two, he starts writing, challenging them to grow in their faith. He says, in the same way that you accepted this Jesus as your Lord and as your leader, grow your roots deep in him and be built up in him. So keep growing your faith. Never be satisfied with where you are on your faith journey. There's always a next step. So be growing in your faith. Chapter three, he starts challenging them to live out their identity, not in what they do, what they produce, what other people think about them, but make sure that your identity, how you see yourself, is what God says about you. And Allison Brantley, our Next Steps director, gave an incredible message last week about how what God says about us is the most important thing about us. And if we live out of that, man, everything starts to fall into place. And today, as Paul is going to land the plane in his teaching and his challenges to these people in Colossae, he's gonna encourage us to look at some new family rules, some ways that we should interact with each other inside the church and then in our homes. And he's got some fireworks for us that we need to unpack together. So we're gonna start this morning by talking about those family rules, right? Those household rules. You guys have like a family code in your house? Like there are just some rules in your house that everybody needs to abide by. Are we the only ones? Everybody's got those family rules, right? Maybe it's like, you know, you need to turn the lights off in the room if, after you walk out of the room. Maybe it's like, don't you dare touch the leftovers from somebody else's meal, right? Or if you, you, know, you get out the toy, you need to pick it up. In our house right now, uh, it looks a lot like, do not smash your baby brother's head into the ground if he's playing with a toy you want. Jack, don't do that to Thomas to personalize this. Uh, another one in our house is, you know, like, don't yell at mama. 
you respect mama. That is like the main rule in our house. Like your mom is the queen. Treat her as so. Oh, man, it's getting like personal. I wonder if my kids can hear me over in the, in the kids wing, right? Or A, if your baby brother is playing with a toy that you want, ask a grown-up for help. You don't have to rip it out of their hands. You know, all these little things. But we all have these family rules. One of ours in our family, it kind of sounds arbitrary, but if we're out of town, we are not allowed to eat at a restaurant we could eat at in town. Anybody give me an amen on that one, right? Yes, yeah. It's the most applause I've gotten in weeks. I love it. But no, it just feels like it just makes so much sense, right? But the funny thing about family rules and household rules is that they're really not arbitrary. They're not rules for rules' sake. Most of the time, if you look at what's underneath of our family rules, our family code, is that we wanna cultivate a culture in our home of peace and of respect and of dignity and of love. And these are the rules that help us love each other well and respect and honor each other well. And so what Paul's gonna do is Paul's gonna explain to us what it means for us as Jesus followers to love each other well, to honor each other well in our church family and in our households. So let's start in Colossians chapter three, verse 15 through 17. Paul says this, and he's writing this specifically about the church, about communities of faith, the family that gets together on Sundays together. He says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish or challenge one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, if you speak it or if you do it with your hands, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul says, here are some signposts, here are some markers what a church family is supposed to look like as we interact with one another. First, he says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts because you need to be you know, ruled by peace, by wholeness, by unity, not uniformity, but by unity. <laughs> and this could be just a sermon in and of itself, but can you imagine can you imagine if the watching world, when they thought of Jesus people, when they thought of the church, they thought, man, those people, they just, they're just peaceful people. Like those Jesus folk, like I don't know if I believe this whole like, you know, death and resurrection thing, but the way they treat each other, they're just like at peace. Even though they're different, they voted for different people and they might've had different stances on how they walked through COVID, they're still for each other and they're peaceful people. Can you imagine, right? Paul says this multiple times. He says for us to be thankful, to sing with gratitude and give thanks to God the Father. We're supposed to be a group of people. The church is called to be a group of people that are just grateful for every blessing. <laughs> that we don't get together on Sundays and just complain about how bad the world is out there and all that's going wrong. And this isn't like the front of our Facebook feeds and all that we're talking about in all our conversations, how the world's going to H-E double hockey stick in a, hand, in a hand basket or whatever the phrase goes. Like we don't live that way. That's not our calling card, but our calling card is just to be, oh man, we're just so grateful. Like, oh, God has blessed us way beyond what we deserve, and we're just so thankful. That should be our calling card. Am I stepping on anybody's toes outside of mine this morning? Because I got mine this morning, because I'm not gonna talk about gas prices. Um, and next, next, Paul says this. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. You know what the center of churches are supposed to be? 
not arbitrary rules, not being the world's moral police and pointing the finger at those on the outside. You know what the center of the church, which should be dwelled upon richly and over and over again is the message of Jesus, the way of Jesus, the person of Jesus. Church, if you don't hear anything else today, we are supposed to be all about Jesus because he is supreme, he is center, he is where the life is, he is where it's happening. So we're supposed to be Jesus-centered communities. And I love how Paul says at the end of this, that hey, man, this like Jesus-centered life, it should pour out in every area of your life. He says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. This Jesus-centered life in our churches, man, it should pour out into our workplaces, our homes, where we play, the benches that we sit on, the bleachers that we sit on at our kids' sporting events, Right? Oh, man, it should all be to give Jesus thanks and to do everything that we do in the name of Jesus, to honor Jesus. What a clarion call for what the church of Jesus could look like, you guys. And I gotta get off of this soapbox quickly because we got a lot of ground to cover. But man, this is so challenging for us. What if the church of Jesus was known for this kind of stuff, for being a people and a community of peace and wholeness, to being people that are just so grateful and thankful, people that are centering their lives around the person and the work of Jesus, people that their whole lives are about being thankful for what Jesus has done. This is what Paul lays down in his household rules for the family of God. And what he does next is he, he brings it even closer to home by talking about the home, talking about how this way of Jesus, making Jesus supreme and central, plays out in our households. And warning, maybe a little bit of a trigger warning, uh, the next words we're gonna look at are probably gonna disturb you. They're probably going to upset you. Maybe for you, these next words are the reason that you walked away from church for a long time. Maybe this is the reason why your husband doesn't go to church or your wife doesn't go to church or your aunt or uncle quit going to church because they couldn't get behind these words that Paul is going to say that should probably equally offend each and every one of us in our modern sensibilities. Have I set this up well enough? Is the suspense killing you? Probably not. But let's... See what Paul says next about how this looks inside of the home. Paul says this, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Let's pray and go home. No. <laughs> says next, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. And if we aren't all offended and wanting to cancel Paul yet, the next words get even harder for us to see. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. At best, many of us look at this and think, oh, this is why I can't take Christianity seriously. This is why I can't take the Bible seriously. It's all antiquated. It's for another time period. This is why we can't take any of this stuff seriously, right? At worst, you think this is oppressive language. This is pushed down women. 
led to abusive homes, led to, or at least reinforced the institution of slavery, our country's darkest, maybe original sin. And you're like, this is maybe why I can't do it. And I imagine we're all feeling a little bit of tension. And it's okay, because hear me, I am feeling the tension right now because I got to try to explain it to y'all. <laughs> Uh, I, I've seen these verses used and there's two other passages kind of similar to it. Um, man, it grieves my heart the way I've seen these Bible verses used uh, to push down women, to make uh, women feel like they've got to stay in an abusive relationship or marriage, to push down children and to abuse kids, to lead to white supremacy <laughs> and one group of people feeling superior to another group of people that can lead to violence like we've experienced the last couple weeks and forever in our country, it seems like. And if you're feeling some of the tension with Paul's words because the way you've seen this lived out, I'm right there with you. And maybe, just maybe, the reason that you're feeling tension with Paul's words and the way you've seen this lived out Maybe it's not wrong. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit inside of you even. Maybe it's Christ-likeness oozing out of you that you've seen the way this plays out and you're like, eh, yuck, ick, evil. And that's okay. Because there's a guiding principle we have when we try to understand what the Bible is saying for our world. And we've said it a couple times throughout the series, but just to say it again, we need to begin with this understanding that the Bible wasn't written to us the Bible was written for us. Paul is not directly writing these words to us today. No, he was a person who lived in time and had a divinely inspired conversation from that prison cell to the church in Colossae. And that was what was written. But that conversation, it was written for us. And we need to pull principles and understanding from that conversation to today in 2022. The Bible wasn't written to us, the Bible was written for us. So let's begin by understanding that divinely inspired conversation in the first century between Paul in a prison cell writing to this church in Colossae. Let's begin there. Because here's, please stick with me. I know this is hard and this is challenging, but please stick with me. Because I think what Paul is doing is revolutionary. I think what Paul is doing was like a record scratch and you know, everybody turned their head because nobody could imagine what was happening. I think what Paul was doing was breaking down traditional gender roles the way they were understood. He was giving dignity to groups of people that had no dignity in the first century and he's revolutionizing the way that Christians are supposed to live and interact with each other. He's flipping everything upside down. So let's do some work. Let's dive into the first century to understand what was going on. You guys with me? You wanna, please, please go with me. I know, I'm looking at you and you're all scared and I'm kind of scared, but we're gonna go there anyway because it's Bridgeway and we go there. Anyway, in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world led by the Roman Empire, there was this conversation that was popular that was just sort of like what would have been on the news nightly or on your Twitter feed news that you'd see every single day. And it was about how do we live the good life People wanted to live a fulfilling, good life. And so philosophers and teachers that were very popular, the people that were cultural commentators, they came to this understanding, well, we need to order the home. 
We need to make sure that the household is in order. So they came up with these household codes that people were called to live by. And Paul's audience in Colossae would be very familiar with these household codes that ordered the household, how we were supposed to run our houses so that we would experience the good life. Do you guys wanna see one of these first century household codes? Probably not, but we're gonna look at it anyway. This is one written by a guy you've probably heard of before. His name's Aristotle. He was not a Christian. He was not a Jew. He was a, a Greek philosopher who we still talk about all the time as being one of the smartest, wisest men who ever lived. And maybe you're gonna rethink that when you look at his household code. But this is what he said about the way the house should be ordered. He says this, of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves. Another, the rule of a father. And the third, of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children. The male is by nature fitter for command than the female. I'm glad I don't have to defend Aristotle too much today. This is what he says a little bit later. He just makes it even worse for himself by our standards today. The free man, the person who's not a slave, rules over the slave after another manner from that in which the male rules over the female or the man over the child. Although the parts of the soul are present in all of them, they are present in different degrees. You're just digging yourself a hole, man. Uh, for the slave has no deliberative faculty at all. The woman has, but it is without authority, and the child has, but is immature. Does that sound antiquated? Does that sound evil and oppressive? Yeah, you better believe it. But this was the water that the people in the first century swam in. Everybody knew this probably by heart. And this was the goal of every family was to live with this kind of order. And Paul knew this because he was culturally savvy. And so when he's writing to this church, he's like, okay, I'm gonna give you a household code, but we're gonna remix it a little bit. We're gonna spike it a little bit. We're gonna like change it up a little bit. I mean, it's almost like he's using the form and the language of Aristotle, but then remixing one of the words at the end. It's almost like you're saying the Pledge of Allegiance, and I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands one nation under dog. Like he's like flipping one word around. I know what the real thing is. I'm just making a point here, you guys. It's like he's singing the Don McLean song for any of our boomer friends in the room, American Pie, and he's bye-bye, Miss American Cake. Where people would like turn their heads like, what is going on? Or any Gen Xers or millennials in the room, our anthem is Mr. Brightside by the Killers, right? Um, everybody knows that. He's like, I miss his dark side. Like, it's like just switching it around at the very end because it's the form that they would understand, but Paul is flipping the script to teach them something new because Jesus changed everything. So with that in mind, understanding that these household codes were in the first century and Paul is gonna give his twist, his remix on these household codes, let's be surprised by his words because there's a lot to be surprised by. First, Paul surprises us by this. Paul shows respect and dignity to women, children, and slaves. Paul shows respect and dignity to these three groups of people that were not given any respect and dignity in the first century. Let's look back at his passage here. Look what we have highlighted. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. It's fitting to the Lord. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Now, what's interesting here is that in every other household code that we have recorded for us in the first century, and you guys can Google this stuff. There's a lot of these household codes. They never address anybody other than the man. It's all about the man at the top, bending others to his will, pushing down what he wants on his wife 
and on his children. It's all about him being the boss, him being the leader. Paul says, no, no, no. I'm going to give dignity and respect to these other classes of people and speak directly to them because they are image bearers of God. Women, I've got something for you. And that's a radical idea. People have been like, what are you talking to the women for? You know, women in the first century in this context, they were considered property of their husbands. Paul says, we're not playing that game. I'm gonna speak directly to the women. Children, you guys, you know, in the first century, it was completely legal to leave your newborn child outside to die of exposure from the weather. This was legal. Paul says, no, we're not, we're not playing that game. I'm gonna speak directly and give dignity and respect to children. That's a radical idea, right? He speaks to slaves who were considered property and less than citizens. He actually chastises and he speaks to masters, the people that would have been owning these slaves, and he actually challenges them. And he says this, masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven saying, hey, hey, guys who own slaves, like, don't think that you're the end-all, be-all because you've got a master in heaven, and if you're unjust with the way you treat people in this life, oh, you've got a master in heaven who's gonna treat you with some justice, if you know what I mean. So watch out the way that you treat anybody that you have authority over in this life. Paul was remixing, flipping this household code on its head, and this was radical. This was revolutionary thinking. But I know that that doesn't like satisfy us very well. So um, we just gotta talk a little bit more about a couple of these trouble spots that I think we should all be wrestling with, right? Like that first line, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, let me say this. My women friends, if you've ever had this verse spoken to you in a way to weaponize it against you in your marriage, I am so sorry, and that is not what Paul is saying. You, please, get out, get help. You do not deserve that. You are so much more than that. This is not a verse that's supposed to weaponize authority over you. Again, what Paul is actually doing is so powerful. It's, it's changing everything. Uh, he, he talks about this concept in a couple different passages. One is in Ephesians chapter five, starting in verse 21, where he says the same phrase, submit yourself to your husbands. But right before that verse, nobody likes to talk about right before that verse because Paul widens and he says, everybody submit yourselves to one another. Everybody. <laughs> what Paul is showing us here is mutual submission. It's everybody, men and women, bending their wills, saying that I am here for you and you're here for me and I'm not here for you because you're here for me. I'm here for you because I love you. And this mutual submission was radical. It was revolutionary. I'm sure it like had lots of people turn their heads, but that is what Paul is talking about, mutual submission towards each other, not demanding our own way all the time, but taking a step back for the other. If you're in a marriage and you guys are both followers of Jesus, you are in a submission competition. My friends, it is a race to the back of the line. It's not man over woman. It's not woman over man. It's meeting in the middle. That is what Paul is talking about when he talks about submitting it to each other. It's to bend towards the other for the sake of of the other and not demanding your own way. And yes, this has been abused. Yes, this can be abused, but that's not what Paul is talking about. 
at all. It's about mutual submission, both people bending towards each other. The other phrase that's so hard for us, and it should be so hard for us, is slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Like, ugh, right? It's so hard for us to like grasp what Paul is talking about. But first, we gotta talk about the difference between first century slavery, what they're experiencing here, and what many of us think about slavery when we think about it is 18th century American slavery. Now, 18th, or 1800s uh, American slavery was ethnic. It was about the color of your skin that you saw somebody and they were less than you. And I don't care who knows it, that's evil, right? Like that is evil, that is not what God wants at all. But the first century slavery was different. First century wasn't about the color of your skin, it was about poverty. If you owed a debt that you could not repay, you went under somebody else as your master until you could repay that debt. Most scholars believe in the first century Roman Empire that 40% of the population were slaves. Two out of every five people were slaves because of an economic hardship that they faced. And that was wrong as well, you guys. But we're talking about two different things. It was the water that everybody swam in. And the early Jesus followers, they can, you know, they constituted of like 0.5% of the Roman Empire. So if you would have said, like, why didn't you just abolish slavery? Like nobody would compute what this thinking was. It'd be like, hey, we does this connect to Bluetooth in the first century? And they would have no idea what you're even talking about, because this is just the way that the world was. But what is powerful to me thinking about Christians and understanding the Bible and slavery is that the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Paul about respecting each other, not being harsh towards one another, it almost uprooted slavery from the ground up. It like was the reason that slavery fell as an institution in the first place, you guys. And did you know that it was Christians that actually started abolition because they were taking the words of Jesus and the scriptures seriously? So what Paul is really talking about is about a system of authority and who was in charge of who during this time. And Paul is kind of subversively uprooting the ideas and the, uh, the ideology of slavery from the ground up. That's what Paul is really getting at here. Now, Paul gives us another surprise in this passage, the way he talks about it, because Paul challenges men. Paul challenges the men in the passage. Now, you see, every other first century household code that we can uncover through archaeology, it was all directed to the man, and it was all about how uh, the man could bend others to his will and could get what he wanted. Paul subverts that. He flips it upside down, and he actually gives his harshest challenges for the men. Let's look at a couple of them here. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now that might sound benign to us and sound pretty normal, but nobody talked like this in the first century. Husbands weren't called to love their wives. They were called to like make their wives do exactly what they wanted. And the word love there is the Greek word agape. And agape love is the most noble form of love in, in the Greek language because it was about sacrifice. It was about lowering yourself to make space for the others. Paul is like, saying you've got to sacrifice for your wife. You've got to like bend towards her. You've got to humble yourselves for her, which would have been radical and nobody would have understood. They would have been like, what are you talking about? That's not what we do here. Paul's like, no, that's what we do here in these Jesus-shaped communities, right? He goes on, he says like, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Your children are not just your property, guys, fathers. They're people that you need to see their whole personhood and love and encourage them. 
You know, what's amazing about the way he challenges the men in this passage is that Paul recognizes that men had an advantage. There was a male privilege all the way back in the first century and probably still exists today, right, ladies? But there was a male privilege. And Paul says, as a man, check your privilege at the door. Your male privilege is not to further your wants and your desires. Your male privilege is to be leveraged for women, for your spouse, and for your children. What Paul is doing is, it's just revolutionary, you guys. Paul, for the first time, said that the man was not the center of this household code that we're called to live by, but somebody else was the center, was the top of the food chain of this household code. Check out this. Who is it? It's the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. You see it all over the place. It's all about the Lord. It's all about Jesus. It's all about that master in heaven. He is the one that we orient our household code around. It's not about the man at all. The man bends his knee to King Jesus. I think this is so powerful. One of my favorite authors, Rachel Held Evans, said this. So when Paul introduces Jesus to the household, everything changes. Rather than placing the male head of house at the sovereign center, Paul places Jesus Christ at the center. And with Jesus Christ at the center, all the old boundaries break down and the hierarchies begin to blur. What we really need to understand is we start to make this, you know, cross this bridge to our time today. What we really need to understand is this, my, my friends. This is what we really gotta see is that Jesus changes everything in our relationships. Jesus changes everything in the way that we interact with one another. Jesus, what, he's, what Paul's challenging us to do is just look at Jesus. If you have power, authority, privilege, you check it for those around you. It's about submitting and serving. It's about lowering yourself. All things that Jesus did as Jesus seeks to change you by serving you, by dying for you. Jesus came to be with you. He left the splendor of heaven. He lowered himself for you. This is the pattern of what Jesus does. Jesus' code of his entire life and his entire ministry and his entire message, that code was love. And so Paul says, if you're gonna have a household code, let it be love and love alone. Because that's what our rabbi, our Lord Jesus did. He was all about love, to see the other person, to respect and honor and give dignity to the other person and let them come into his presence and be changed from there. This is all that Jesus did, you guys. Jesus, walking through Jerusalem, sees a woman thrown in front of him and a bunch of religious leaders pick up stones to stone her because of her supposed sin. Jesus stands in the way and says, oh, you don't treat women like this. Those of you without sin, you throw the first stone. <laughs> but he stands in the gap to protect them because of love. Jesus invited the most notorious sinners, even tax collectors, to come sit with him. And he lost his cultural cleanliness so that he could be with and look eye to eye with people that everybody else thought was evil because of love. Jesus rebuked those who were rushing away children from his presence, who thought that children were less than, let's get these kids away from Jesus. Jesus had harsh 
criticism for them. Jesus turns into a little bit of Tony Soprano mob boss and says, if you keep these little kids away from me, it'd be better that you have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea, right? Let the little children come to me, Jesus says, because they matter and I love them. Jesus broke down every cultural, gender, racial barrier you can possibly imagine when he was talking to a Samaritan woman at the well and Jesus looked her in the eyes and spoke to her and said that you matter and I want you to be one of the very first people to know that I'm the Messiah. Everywhere Jesus went, he was breaking down barriers and welcoming people in and saying that my life is love. If you wanna know what love looks like, follow me. And so Paul's picking that up and he's like, we need to make sure that love's in the center of all of our relationships. So Paul, the whole message of Colossians is we need to have lives where Jesus is supreme. Jesus is the head, the leader of everything. But what does it look like when Jesus is supreme in our relationships? It looks like love. So every couple months we come back to this question and come back to it in different contexts, but I want us to wrestle with it a little bit and be challenged by it. Because if Jesus' whole code was love, and Paul's trying to get us to live out this love in our households. We need to ask this question, what does love require of me? If we're gonna follow Jesus, and Jesus was all about love, then what does love require of me in my relationships? What does it mean for me to submit in my relationships? For me to just, okay, I'm not gonna clench fists ready to punch, I'm just gonna submit. Not where it's abusive, but when there's a place where we can instill peace instead of conflict, what does it look like for us to submit men in our marriages, women in our marriages? What does it look like for you to submit? That's what love requires of you. What does it look like for you to live out love, not just to have the feelings of love, but to sacrifice that agape kind of love in your household, to sacrifice your time, to sacrifice your energy, to sacrifice maybe your preferences for your loved one, what does that look like? What does love require of you to actively love? What does love require of you if you've got a boss, if you've got a supervisor? What does it require of you? Are you gonna go along with everybody as you're like ribbing them when they're out of the room or texting about them behind their back or just putting in the bare minimum? Are you gonna work for your supervisor, your manager, your boss as if you're actually working for the Lord Jesus and give your best in everything that you do? That's what love requires of you. For some of us, what does it look like if you're the boss? What does it look like to lovingly hold authority over people down the organizational chart from us? You think about what you're asking them to do. Do you see what, how's it, how it affects them? Do you can even consider what it means for them to receive the instructions you give them? Do you see them as a whole person or as a means to an end? That's what love requires of us is to carry authority well to see the dignity in their lives and not be harsh with them. So I want you to wrestle with that. What does love require of you in your home, in your workplace, where you play? You know, something I've been learning, the more that I follow Jesus, the more that I walk through life and I start to have gray hair pop up up here, um, I, start, I start to realize more and more and more that love is the end game, that you don't graduate from love, like if you wanna be a deep Christian, <laughs> your journey begins with love, the middle is love, and the end is love. It's all about working out what Jesus has done for me in the horizontal. You don't graduate from that, man. That's deep Christianity. 
So let's be people, you guys, here at Bridgeway at least. Let's be a little corner of God's kingdom where we are obsessed and driven by love because Jesus so richly lavished it upon us that we're trying to figure out what it means to love everybody, always, no matter what around us. And may it begin in our homes and then spill out to the world around us because I think that's what Paul had in mind. Let it start at home and it's gonna take over everything over time. What an invitation and what a challenge.